Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. I woke up this morning and I walked outside and I thought, oh, what a beautiful, cool morning. That's, you don't say that very often in July, do you? <laughs> it, it was actually beautiful and uh, still is, still very mild. I, so nice. 72, room temperature outside. I like that. Yeah, those storms can bring some damage. They, they do bring relief from the heat, so we pray nobody got hurt too bad. Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're still in John chapter 8. I think we'll finish it today. But there was just too much there to pass through very quickly. And I did finish verses 41 through 47 last week, but I want to kind of pick up where we left off those last, uh, those last couple of verses and bring that into the end of the dialogue, which is, which is through verse 59. And uh, as we do that, I put a few things on the board for you to think about. Several things are happening in this dialogue between Jesus and, quote, as John says, the Jews. We know that to be the leaders of the Jews. Several things are happening. There's some really pretty, pretty intense drama happening, if we'll take the time to look and read between the lines and see what's happening. We'll try and do that today. There's some accusations being made. We talked a little bit about that last week. There's a definite denial being offered. We'll talk about that. There's an incredible example of humility. And there's an amazing promise. We're going to pull all of that out of just these few verses. So let's begin with the thought where Jesus, last week, after telling them that their father was the devil. (laughs) Pretty strong words. After telling them that, he says in verse 46, he asks the question. Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of any sin? Now, imagine, if you will, the tension and the quietness after that. All we have is a written record, and you go from one sentence to the next. But can you imagine in this intensity of these, you know, he's already called them children of the devil, and, 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 and he says to them, who of you can convict me of any sin? A hush had to fall over the crowd. Because they couldn't. They literally could not. There was not one thing they could raise their hand and say, but you did this. Now they've tried to say, you're breaking the Sabbath, and every time Jesus always had an explanation for them, you know, when he healed the man's arm on the Sabbath, that wasn't against the law. It wasn't against the law to do good for someone on the Sabbath, to heal someone. They're constantly trying to, uh, to find false arguments against Jesus. And here's the thing. They know, in the hardness of their hearts, they know they're false. They, we can use this phrase, they should know better. <coughs> they should know better. And I want that to speak to us. How many things are so plain before our eyes in our lives that we should know better? I think Jesus can be speaking into our lives today 
when we really take this apart. So the, the drama is set. You know, he's, if, if I'm guilty, you tell me where. You know I'm not. Well, in, what is that saying? It's like saying, if I'm not guilty, though, then you need to admit I'm, I'm here by God sending me. I'm God in human flesh. I mean, there's so much in this pregnant pause, if you will, between that phrase and the very next, that question of Jesus and the very next phrase. Which of you convicts me of sin? I don't think Jesus went right on to the next sentence. I think he just waited to hear. Okay, I'm here. And I don't think they could say anything. And then he says, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And we know that he ends verse 47 by saying, it's because you are not of God. Unbelievably, powerfully strong words of accusation. You are not of God. Not only has he told them they're children of the devil, they are not of God. And these are the Jewish people. These are the people that have prided themselves on being the very chosen people of God. For generation after generation after generation. And so, as we move into the next section of Scripture that kind of closes out this dialogue, um, let's hear their answer. Verse 48. Let's pick up the story in verse 48. And hear what the Jews say to him. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I have not a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he will be the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I said I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, You are not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Wow, that is, there is so much there. Let me, let me begin by saying, I, I'm, I'm convicted. I wanted to say this before I started the class, and I get so excited to teach this lesson, I forgot to say this. So not on this pet set of scriptures, but a couple, two weeks ago when I was teaching, I was kind of excited. I talked about the, remember I mentioned that seven years and years of Jubilee. That was, I was incorrect on that. Mark, you are correct, and thank you for correcting me. Please feel free to correct me. The Jubilee was seven times seven, which is 49. So the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And I, I kind of, in my, ex, you know, just talking off the cuff, thought, well, Wow, wouldn't it be nice if you only had to pay a seven-year mortgage or something laughing, all debts forgiven. The debts were forgiven in the year of Jubilee, but that was only after 
50 years, or 7 times 7 is 49. You had 7 times 7 to collect your debt, 49 years. Uh, and I think I said 7. So I kept on, last week I was going to begin class by saying, thank you, Mark, for telling me that. Please, anyone, correct me if you hear me say something wrong, because a lot of this I do without deep notes in front of me, so if I pull something out, feel free to correct me. But I want to go back to this and, and ask you, why do, they, why do they call him a Samaritan? Their, their only comeback after he said, you're not of God, you're of the devil, you can't even convict me of any sin. They want to press the argument. Why you're a Samaritan? Aren't we not right to say you're a Samaritan? How could they accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan? According to them, they thought his mother and father was Joseph and Mary. Neither of them were Samaritans. What's the dig here? Why are they calling him a Samaritan? They think he's outcast. Outcast? Samaritans were outcasts. Samaritans Samaritans were the lowest of the low. He was friendly to them. And he was friendly to them. He took time to stop in their villages. He went through there when no one else would. Um, So to call him a Samaritan was a very, very strong put down. But it also says how, how negatively and how disgustingly they thought of Joseph and Mary. They believe, there's, there's this saying, Mary must have had an affair with a Samaritan. Joseph wasn't the father, and they're trying to pass this off as a virgin birth. Mary must have had an affair as a Samaritan because you're a Samaritan. This is low stuff. This is low life stuff that they're saying. This is how threatened they are of this, this man who's come among them and with amazing miracles and words and wisdom and claims of being God. And so they say, you have a demon. They even go as far as to say he has a demon. So you see there's a lot of accusations being thrown around here. Jesus is accusing them, but he's not really accusing them in the sense that he doesn't have any proof. He knows who they are. You're children of the devil. If you're not, remember last week we talked about there are really only two kingdoms. What are the two kingdoms of this world? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And there are only two. And Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. The reality is, he's calling them as he sees them. But they're accusing him of all kinds of horrible things. And he says, you know, Jesus just denies it right there. We have his own plain words. Jesus says, I have not a demon. I I have no demons. I'm not demon possessed. I am in no way, hey, there's the dessert. Yeah, I figured I'd just get it out at the end, but thanks for bringing it. There's more to it that's in the refrigerator. Thank you. You can just set it up there. Um, So Jesus says, I have not a demon. And denies their words. And he, sacked, he says, you dishonor, but I, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus is saying, I'm honoring God, my father, but you're dishonoring me. How are they dishonoring him? By, yeah, if, if he's, it's a pretty much dishonor of anyone to call him in their vernacular, to call him a Samaritan and a demon-possessed person. But he truly, they really are dishonoring him And he says, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Well, we're going to hear Jesus develop that thread throughout this book of John. When he says, I and the father are one. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the father. 
If you dishonor the Father, you dishonor. If you dishonor me, you dishonor the Father. Jesus will develop that theme. You'll see that develop as we go throughout this book. But then he says, I don't seek my own glory. Jesus says, I don't seek my own glory. Jesus is offering us a beautiful model of humility here. Never once does Jesus say, I'm God, just listen to me, and let me prove it to you. Or I'm going to smite you down. (laughs) He just doesn't pull that rank. He doesn't pull that card. He continually offers a model of humility. And he says, there is one who seeks glory, meaning the Father, Father God. There is one who does seek glory. I'm not, I'm never, Jesus, one of the things we can say about the life of Jesus Christ is nowhere in the scripture does it ever record him as seeking out glory or being a glory hog or calling attention to himself. Jesus continually called everyone's attention to the Father. Now he came to a point where he admits, I and the Father are one. And we're going to hear at the end of this passage how he says, I'm God, in in so many words. But he doesn't call glory to himself. I have a question. Yes, please. How do you think the Jewish leaders got so off track? It's a great question. (laughs) Given what we know and what they know, how'd they get there? Yeah, how do you get to wanting to be, you know, that's your life calling? Of, of children the of the one true God and you get so far away from it from what you probably great question. Is some of it through well obviously some is from what was passed down to them what mm-hmm. you learn in your family situation mm-hmm. some of it is peer pressure mm-hmm. I'm sure mm-hmm. but great questions <laughs> and how res- and I'll even go one further how responsible are they they didn't just think up this line of talk. It was passed down to them. Right. I mean, this has been hundreds of years that they have grown up in this area. So you're asking an excellent I'm question. I'm asking that because how, how do, you know, even today, how do we get so far off track? How do, that's, that's right. <laughs> so can, how do we see ourselves, can we see ourselves in the life of the Jewish people here? Her question was, how did these Jews get so far off track? I mean, they can't even recognize Christ for who he is as this great, at least if they couldn't understand him to be God, at least they could have revered him as an incredible prophet and an incredible servant of God by the mighty works that he did. But they didn't even do that. How'd they get so far off track? Especially given all their knowledge. And all their training. Uh, that's a great question for us to consider. What do you think? There's a great passage in Job. <clears throat> I can't remember where. And it applies to that and us today even yet. Men pasture stolen fields. They take the child's donkey. They take the widow's ox away. And the boundary markers are all moved. Wow. That's the progression of what happens. Wow. How we get in the boundary markers keep being moved. You start with little things that are easy, take something from someone else, boundary markers again, keep on moving them. Great verses from the book of Job. Thank you. That's it. One little step at a time. 
How did their hearts get so hard? One little step at a time. Now, I think it's important to stop and note that 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 is capable of anyone. Anyone is capable of that. We're all capable of that. Sometimes, some Christians read back into these stories about the hardness of the Jews' hearts, and they look at it from a very predestinated way that, oh, well, it was just part of God's plan. They had to be hardened, and they had to be, somebody had to be for Jesus to be crucified and all this. But let us never forget, that's not good theology. Okay, our theology is one of freedom of the will. And we know that in the very beginning, before all time, God knew everything that would ever happen. And he knew who would cooperate with him and who wouldn't. He knew who would allow themselves to move one little marker at a time and who would take their faith for granted. And who would. And so God didn't preordain these Jews to be hard of heart. He just knew they would be. And so he allowed that to happen. And thus allowed Christ to be sacrificed for us. But not because God made it happen. God allowed it to happen in the freedom of this world, in the freedom of our human will. And knowing all that would happen, God still loved so much that he chose to create. And so that's a message to you and I, each one of us. We must examine our lives and say, where's my heart? What what are the little things that maybe I take for granted? And if I'm not careful, God will harden my heart. I mean, not God will. God will allow my heart to be hardened. I mean, so I wanted to say that they, my heart. Maybe they appear to me not to be very happy, very judgmental, and very negative. They appear that way. And if I catch myself being that way, <laughs> that's care. That's good. Good point. I mean, Jesus is our model for humility. He's not our model for criticism. He's not our model for judgment. In fact, he says there's one who's coming who will be the judge, and it's not him. It's the Father God. Now, I take that as a good warning, and I thank you for asking that question, because as we look at the balance of this chapter and this conversation here, they're going to continue to bring up judgment against him. They're going to judge him for being young. He talks about Abraham. He bring, they bring up Abraham a lot, so he brings up Abraham a lot. Abraham's their great father in the faith, and so he brings up Abraham as well and, and talks about uh, the fact that uh, uh, Abraham, uh, they say, we know you have a demon. Abraham died. This I want to come back to verse 51 about never seeing death. I'll come right back to that. But because their response to that is, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. Even Abraham is what they mean. Even the great Abraham died. Everyone dies. The great prophets, everyone dies. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus answers them, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Humility again. Jesus refuses to glorify himself when he certainly could. But I I want us to catch something here. When Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Why why would Jesus say that? Why would his glory, why would his words or his self-testimony or anything, why would it be nothing in his his own eyes, in his own phrase? That's a difficult thought there. I would think that anything Jesus says would have value. 
There's something we, we have to look deeply to see here. Again, as I've told you, the Gospel of John is always teaching us Trinitarian theology. What Jesus is saying here is, I, my words are nothing on their own. Because I'm not on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm God. I am the Son of God. I am the second person of the Holy Trinity. I am part of a oneness that cannot be separated, but yet is somehow mystically separate in personhood. And he's saying, I have no glory to give you of my own. That's something we want to always see. John is telling. John is teaching. It's going to come fuller and fuller as we go through. So I had a little note in my margin here. That's a Trinitarian thought. Don't miss it. Jesus is nothing on his own. He, by his own words, he tells us that. But yet there are Christians who want to reject the doctrine of the Trinity and constantly elevate Jesus all on his own. Um, something he refused to do. So let's come back to this thought. Jesus is refusing to elevate himself. He's being the model of humility. And he says something fascinating in verse 51. And Debbie, you mentioned this to us last week when we, you talked about, I think your phrase was, I went back and listened to it, that you, you feel like when you experience a little bit of heaven right here when we believe. I love that thought. So let's, let's take off on that thought and think. Jesus says in verse 51, truly, truly, and we know that means amen, amen, that Hebrew word of, of, of so let it be. It's hard to translate it. We know this is truth. Truth, truth, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And that just throws them for a loop. They're like, this guy's crazy. Everyone sees death. So Jesus has clearly got a different definition of death than they do. So let's look this morning, how do we define, what are we to learn from this? How do we define death? What is death? I think about this a lot because in my own personal ministry, I do a lot of funerals. I've written a book recently about death. Uh, not as well as I should have written it because I've, ever since I've published it, I've had more thoughts that I wish I would have put in it because you, you, you kind of never finish a thought, it seems like. Uh, and I thought, oh, why didn't I talk about this? Why didn't I talk about it? And even preparing for this lesson this week, I thought, if I just take the question, what is death? I wish I could have said more in that book about it. But let's talk about it this morning. What is death? How do you understand death? Well, my own life, when I came to the Lord, I had a spiritual awakening, so okay. to speak. Okay. Before that, even though I was alive, I think there are walking dead people going around because, I mean, I I just started experiencing life in a new way through Jesus' eyes. Mm -hmm. was, um I mean, he brought peace, love, forgiveness mm -hmm. into my life. Where mm -hmm. before, you didn't I, have I it. Didn't huh? ha I mean, you think you have it, but it's mm -hmm. in your own strength, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say it seems like you can start living a little bit of heaven mm. here on earth because you're spiritually awakened. You start seeing not your eyes. You start seeing things more spiritually. Mm -hmm. Where before, it's like a spiritual... You're in a spiritual death, so to speak, where you can be living in a little bit of hell on earth, too, mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. because you're just, you know, you're in your, you're trying to do it in your own strength, and you, and a lot of the times you're just feeling envious, and yeah. I mean, that just drag, drags you Drains down. you, doesn't it? You're yeah. Like a walking dead person. So yeah. 
I don't know. It's a beautiful but that's thought. how I see yeah. a little bit of heaven now on earth. I mean, I know what's to come is greater, but I feel like I experienced yeah. a little bit of it because of the spiritualness of knowing Jesus. Beautiful. Let me remind you of something we studied in John chapter 5. I told you one of the most important verses in the Bible, John chapter 5, verse 24. Just memorize it. Begins with those same words. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, truth, truth, I say to you. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into death, but has passed out of death. Does not come into judgment, I'm sorry, I quote the verse from memory here. But does not, he who, has, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. That's John 5, 24. That's memorized from the NASB, I think. But in any version you read it in, I do mention this in my book. I think I use that phrase in, in my book. I say, look, I'm not an English major. I don't know a lot about English, and I prove that every time I talk. But, but the truth is I know, <laughs> I know a present tense when I see it. And in every translation I've ever looked that verse up, including the original Greek, it is always present tense he who believes in him who sent me has eternal life and has passed out of death and into a present being life so I truly believe that when in this verse 8 here we are in verse 8 I mean chapter 8 Jesus is saying anyone who keeps my word and remember look up the word word and it's logos, not graphene. Not the written word, but anyone who keeps me is what Jesus is saying. I'm the word of God. I'm the mind of God. Anyone who keeps me will never see death. Will have eternal life. Will have eternal life. So what is death? It's an experience we all must pass, pass through. And it is simply a doorway. If I can use that analogy. We are trained, because of our humanness, we are trained to see death as the physical dying of the body. We say it, so-and-so died. I'm becoming more and more troubled by that thought when, I, when, I, when I'm talking or reading or, or, or preaching in, in a funeral or anything. I, I don't like to say they died on that day. I want to know their life. Did they, the truth is, they died the day they, as you said, Debbie, Receive Jesus Christ. Because when we come into Christ, that means in faith, believing, okay, we die. The Apostle Paul said it this way in the Galatian letter. And you've heard it many times, but hear it in the context of our discussion in John 8. Paul says, Galatians 2, he says, For I have died to Christ. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I'm now living, I live to the glory of the Son of God, who gave himself up for me. 
There's a mystical trans. There's a mystical transition happening when we come to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. We we no longer live just for ourselves. It's no longer my power that lives this life. It's no longer your power that lives this life. It's the power of Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. Uh, that's mind-boggling. I'm just going to tell you that's mind-boggling. But it is filled with hope. It's filled with hope. Because Jesus says on His own authority, on His own word, in the Gospel of John, that when we make that I don't want to call it a transaction. I think that's part of the problem of the evangelical world. We've centered too much on calling it a transaction. It, it, it's, a, it's a mystical union. And it's a thriving, living, breathing union that I do believe with the freedom of our will we can step out of and reject and walk away if we so choose to. Can't imagine why anyone would. God never lets us go. We don't ever have, we're going to get to John chapter 10 and we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about eternal security. And we're going to hear Jesus saying words like, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And we'll, we'll talk, I don't want to get ahead of myself. It's so easy to do in this book. Because all these words from later in the book all relate back to what we're studying now. But let's take it one step at a time. What I want us to hear today is that Jesus is saying that death is nothing more than a doorway a threshold we must pass through from this life, which is dead. We're already dead. In fact, I'm going to tell you, we're born dead. We're born dead. Because we're born absent the union of the spirit of the life of Christ. Now we're born. If you go all the way back to creation, there's only Two people who are literally created in the image of God with the breath of God, and that's Adam and Eve. Everyone else, it says, we're created in, we're born, not created, but born in Adam's image. Study the book of Genesis, you see that. Oh, there's a little subtle change there. All of a sudden, what does that mean? We're born in Adam's image, not created, rather born. And we're born into the Adam, what by that time Adam was mortal. Adam was dead. He was in the process of dying. Once sin entered their life and they broke in union with, with the Father, their sin was, they were in the process of dying. So now we can understand the words of the psalmist in Psalm 23 when he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Do you realize that the valley of the shadow of death is not just when your mother dies, your father dies, your husband dies, your wife dies, your son or child, your loved one dies, all of a sudden you're in the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. No. The valley of the shadow of death is when we're born into this world. It's a long valley. But it has an end. Because you see, valleys are open on both ends. Canyons are closed. You enter a canyon and it's closed somewhere at the other end. But a valley is something we pass through. And this whole life is the valley of the shadow of death. There's death all around us. And until we find Jesus Christ as our risen Savior and Lord and put our faith in Him and begin to live by His power, not of our power, we are dead already. But thanks be to God, <laughs> Paul says. 
You know, he says in the book of Romans, who can rescue me from this wretched man that I am? Praise be to God. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ has come and given himself up for me. There is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It means to live in faith and in his indwelling power. Remember Paul's words, the life that I live is not mine, but of Christ who lives in me. And I think that's what he's saying here. Now we know, he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Never taste death the way we see it. We didn't, we didn't realize we were born dead, so we didn't have to really taste it. But here's the truth. We know that we're going to physically die. Bodily die. We're going to die. Our bodies are going to die. Every single one of us. Unless... Jesus steps out of history, I mean out of eternity and into history at his second coming. And we happen to be, as Paul again writes in the Thessalonian letter, to those of us, we don't, he says in the book of Thessalonians, we don't want you to be ignorant, my brothers and sisters, about all those who have fallen asleep in Jesus as those who have no hope, meaning the ones without Jesus. We don't want you to be ignorant because we know that those of us who are alive and remain at his coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For they shall rise first at the trumpet of God and, and the trump of the archangel, the words, the shout of the archangel, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive shall be caught up to remain with him in the air. That, with, thus we shall ever be with the Lord, so therefore comfort one another with these words. That's First Thessalonians. Something or other chapter and verse I can't give you. But do you see what I'm saying? There is this amazing Ability for us to see now today that even though we will physically bodily die yet, we're really not dead. Yes, I see a hand. The scripture that you share with many people, when, like you just shared with my grandpa the other day, okay, um, about our outer bodies, um, that our, our outer bodies decaying, but our inner bodies being renewed. Yes, that's Second Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four. There, sixteen through eighteen. Therefore, we do not lose heart. That whole chapter, Paul is writing to people who are experiencing the death of their loved ones. And in that in that letter, and he's trying to help them see the hope that is theirs. And he begins that chapter four by saying. You know, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The power to live, the power to live is not from us, it's from God. Everything, the beauty, the power. And then he says, for we have been stricken but not destroyed. And you, we've been perplexed but not, you know, all of that, I can't quote that very well. But then when you get to the end of the chapter in verses 16 through 18, he says this. He says, therefore... Considering all of that, we do not lose hope. We do not lose heart. Because even though our outer man is decaying, we're all dying. In other words, he says our inner man, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction, all of life and the process of dying 
in saying goodbye to our loved ones, all of this Paul calls a momentary light affliction. In verse 17 he says, For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So let us keep our eyes not on that which is seen, the human body, the human body of our loved one who's dying. Let us keep our eyes not on that which is seen, but on that which is unseen. Because that which is seen is temporary. That which is unseen is eternal. First, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So, what I really believe Jesus, what, what, what I think we can take away from this study in the Gospel of John here, Jesus in all, Jesus is, John is trying to give us Jesus' words to help us to see. Everything about Jesus is life. And everything about Jesus conquers death. Through Jesus' own death, he conquers death forever. Never to reign again. We know there's two kingdoms, but one kingdom is already won. For a little while, the kingdom of this world, the, the devil and his minions, has some effect on us. Profound effect. Evil is very profound. It hurts. It causes a lot of pain. But yet, the one thing that the evil of this world cannot do is what? It cannot take away eternity from us. It cannot may take away our life, physical life, but it can't take away our eternal life. So I, I, I want to raise our level of thinking. What is death? Death, is, death isn't really death. It's a transition. Maybe that's the best word. It's a transition from a bodily life to a spiritually spiritual life. Only to understand that one day there will still be another bodily life. God will even raise up. That's what it says in Thessalonians. God will raise up these mortal bodies out of dust. Isn't that amazing thought? Truly amazing thought. It's the worm in the cocoon. The lowly worm on the earth in the cocoon and breaks mm-hmm. out into this beautiful butterfly. Yeah, what? The a... best example we have from God to show us what. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean... And that process of that worm becoming a cocoon becoming a beautiful butterfly is known in science as what? What is it? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And what in that word is a Greek word. And you know what that word means in Greek? It means to change form. So we go from the worm, the old hymn writer that said to such a worm as I. You know when you sing that hymn that God should love a sinner such as I to such a worm as I to the cocoon which is the grave to the metamorphosis which is when the physical body is resurrected so what goes on in the grave what's going on in the cocoon is the worm dead is it no the worm the worm's not dead it's in a state of what, what appears to us as dormant, it's in a state of being metamorphosized, if that's a word, but, but it's not dead. <laughs> I don't think that's a word, is it? <laughs> Sounds good to me. But, but, but the word, so you see what I'm saying? We're in this, and that's what happens. So what happens to us in the grave? What happens to us in the grave? Metamorphosis. Paul says, 
we are being changed. In another place in the Corinthian letter, we are being changed from glory into glory into glory. Again, the metamorphosis. Now, we need to stop here and acknowledge that our faith is built on this thought that the grave has no power upon us. And in the creeds, and we've talked about the creeds a lot, and I did bring some more, some of you who might have missed, if you didn't get one of these, the Nicene Creed, I brought some more. Because the creed does have this creedal statement, it's, it's power, that says right in here, and he, meaning Jesus, was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. Okay? Jesus truly went to the grave. Now, there is another creed that Western Christians have used a lot. Eastern Christians never used for some reason or another. And the Western creed that you may be familiar with is much shorter. is called the Apostles' Creed. Okay? And in the Apostles' Creed, it even says, and he was suffered, buried, and died, and descended into hell. If you've heard that before in the Apostles' Creed. And I maintain to you that that's wrong word. It shouldn't say hell. It should say Hades. Misunderstanding of the place of the dead. And some of the, some of the, arc, uh, some of the real uh, studies that I've been able to do of some of the earliest forms of those creeds, in its earliest days it didn't really say descent into hell, but that was gradually added, and it was added in a, in a misunderstanding uh, of use, misuse of the word hell. Because truly, hell, as Jesus used it, is a place of torment and torture for those that have died. But yet, Hades is the Greek word. Hell is, the, hell is a, an English word for Gehenna in Greek. Okay? And that's a play, meaning a place of torment, a place of uh, outer darkness, and a trash heap, if you will, where everything's burned. Uh, but Hades is the Greek word for the place of the dead which the Old Testament always called Sheol. The Jewish people always believed. And we're going to talk, this is, this is important because we're going to talk about Abraham now in this conversation. They said, uh, Abraham died. You know, look, look a little further. Let's finish this last thought. The last great thought of this passage, of this dialogue, is that, is that um, they are saying to him, you're not even 50 years old. Well, what did they? Why did they choose fifty? You may know why they chose fifty. That was when the Levites, the Levite ministry, had the right of retirement at fifty years old. Why well, we missed that one, didn't we? <laughs> so uh, I guess that's the one place that you can find retirement in the Bible. <laughs> I've always said retirement's not in the Bible, and I don't think it says that in the Bible anyway. It's just their custom. But um, and I could be wrong on that too. So somebody can check me on that. <laughs> I'd love to love to know if it says fifty years old in there for the Levites because I'm I'm serving Levitical the Levitical people were the priests you know so ministers of the Levites and they can go to the go to the district and the general church and say hey it says in the Bible we're supposed to retire at fifty <laughs> doesn't say that I don't believe but if you find it let me know but what I want you to hear is that it says your father Abraham he, they're saying he died we're called they're calling Jesus. You know, uh, crazy is what they're doing. And Jesus turns around and tells them, he says, uh, your father Abraham rejoiced that he, that he was to see my day. 
He saw it. There's an emphatic statement. He saw it and was glad. (laughs) So when did Abraham, the question becomes, when did Abraham see Jesus? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. I don't know the exact number, but somewhere like that. You know, Moses was probably 1,500 years, so I don't know, somewhere back there. How many years between Abraham and Jesus? When did Abraham see Jesus? How did Abraham see Jesus? That's what they think he's crazy. They really think Jesus is crazy here. But here's what I want you to see. They should have known better. That's what this whole chapter could be about. They should have known better. Why? Because even the rabbis of this day had teachings about Abraham. Now, uh, the Bible commentator William Barclay does a wonderful, masterful job of digging up this history for us, and so I want to share them with you. They say, he says, there's at least five ways that Abraham, they believed Abraham would have seen the Messiah. Number one was that Abraham was in paradise. Now that's in the Old Testament, Sheol, the New Testament, Hades. And Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 16. I know we haven't done the gospel of Luke here yet, but in Luke chapter 16, there is this story. I alluded to it last week and other times where Jesus is talking about the rich man who died, went to paradise, went to Hades, it says, and the beggar, Lazarus, who is carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And that Abraham's bosom is a word meaning paradise. Why? Because that's where Abraham is. Abraham's the father of of all who will be redeemed, according to the promise in Genesis, and so he's in paradise. Well, who else is in paradise? Jesus. So they understood that Abraham would see Jesus in paradise. So, duh, they should know. Secondly, If you go back into Genesis chapter uh, 12, where it says um, they use the word uh, rejoiced. I think it's, let's look at it real quick. I think we have time. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. It's only one verse, so I want to take a moment to read it to you. There's just two or three more here. But in chapter 3, and it says, when it says, and this is God's covenant with Abram. And I will bless those who bless you, and, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there was an understanding by the rabbis that they knew that the Messiah would one day be in that line of Abraham if everyone was going to be blessed. And so there would be no problem for Abraham to be able to someday, especially given the verses I'm about to show you, be blessed. Because then if we go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, Genesis 15, verse 8 says, and Abraham is talking to God here, he says, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? Meaning this this promise, this covenant. And so he, meaning God, said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon and then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other but he did not cut the birds and the birds of prey came down upon the carcass and Abraham drove them away and now when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold terror and great darkness fell upon him and God said to Abraham know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years but I will also judge the nation 
whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. At a good old age. That's the key phrase we want to look at there. Um, and then he says, and you should go to your, and be buried at a good old age. Okay, now, the Hebrew rabbis, some of the other translations of that were that Abraham saw the good old age. And there was a thinking in the rabbinic teachings that Abraham actually, in this covenantal promise, when Abraham went into this, uh, well, during this when it says, going down a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. The rabbinic thought was, was developed that, that Abraham actually was like, had a vision in his sleep. That in this, he saw the ancient of days. He saw the good old days and that he saw that the fulfillment of everything and that Christ would be the Messiah. I mean, so the rabbinic teaching developed that Abraham knew who the Messiah would be. And even by chapter 17, another one that these rabbis saw in chapter 17, verse 7, and I believe this is, the, this is where... You might be familiar. I shouldn't have shut this because I just lost it. <laughs> Here we go. Chapter 17. In verse 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? We've heard many sermons about that because it sounds funny, you know, that Abraham laughed at, at this thought that he would bear a child, him and Sarah would bear a child in their old age. But the rabbinic teachings say that that laugh wasn't a laugh of disbelief but a laugh of rejoicing that God showed him who the Messiah would be and when the Messiah would come and that Abraham saw the whole plan in this vision, in this dream, in this covenant uh, relationship with God. So there's a lot of, a lot of reasons why. Um, and then verse, the last one, verse 20, chapter 24, uh, where it talks about stricken, uh, it's stricken in age. And that's, again, the idea of going into the ages. Um, instead of just meaning he was old, that it, the rabbinical teaching was that perhaps what he meant was that he was going into the ages of ages and seeing, let me read it for you, 24, I think it's in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And so the rabbi said that by being old and being advanced in his age, he was in this idea of seeing the future through the vision of God. So a lot, I throw all that out there to say that they should have already had an understanding that the, that the, the Messiah was coming, when he was to come, who he was to be. This is not totally escapable to them. They're rabbinic team. Now, these aren't necessarily all rabbis. These are Pharisees and others. But the Pharisees were students of the rabbinic teachings, and they should have known this. So it's really strange for them to say, to take the reaction that they do. Um, and Jesus says, you have not known him. I know him, meaning the Father. And I said, I do, if I said I don't know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoice that he was to see my day. So clearly, whether that's one of those five, the ways the rabbis saw it in the book of Genesis, or whether it's just as Jesus even 
reports in Luke 16 where they saw him in paradise. The point is that Abraham saw Jesus. In his after-death experience somehow, Abraham saw Jesus. And he's, what Jesus is saying is, Abraham knows who I am. Your father, the one you claim to be from, Abraham, he knows who I am. You should know who I am. And so they say, you're not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What have we learned about that phrase, I am? It's the Greek words, ego ami. It's the name of God. It's where we get the name of God, the Yahweh. The name that was above all names, the name that couldn't be uttered by the Jewish people. Ego ami in Greek. He didn't say, what he could have said here was, before Abraham was, I was. And they wouldn't have said he was, it wouldn't have offended them at all. They would have thought he was crazy still. What do you mean? You're not 50 years old. You weren't before Abraham. But by saying I am, again, I can't, can't tell you enough. This idea of am. How do we define the word am? It's this present being. God is always everywhere present. Past, present, and future. God exists outside of time and space. The Hebrew writer said God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the only being that ever is present. I'm not present right here. I was a second ago, but now I'm past that second. You know, and I'm past that second, I'm past that second. I, there's no way you and I can really be in the present, but God is always in the present. To God, there is no past. To God, there is no future. God is the ultimate present. And I like how God is before us, he's with us, and he's behind us. Pastor Mark's sermon. Beautiful yeah. illustration of Pastor Mark's sermon these last couple of weeks. It's the God who, God who's behind us, the God who's before us, the God who's with us. Um... So that's what Jesus is saying. Ego amin. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And so they took up stones to throw at him. He used the holy name of God that no one was supposed to use and said, I am. Wow. So that closes chapter 8. A dialogue, a fairly long dialogue that Jesus has had with the Jews. And it is setting up all that's about to happen in these middle chapters of the book. Because this idea is going to continue of Jesus claiming in greater ways, in more distinct ways, that he is God. This book of John, Jesus is revealed as God. And God in Trinity, God in truth, God in light, God in word. Next, next chapter, chapter 9, we're actually going to talk about God as light. That's going to be the metaphor that John is going to use. Well, for now, what do we want to learn today? We want to learn that there is two kingdoms. Only one wins. Only one has already won. And it's the one we want to be a part of, and it's God's kingdom. And it's the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of the Son, the kingdom of the Holy Spirit. I want, to, I want to give you a phrase, I want to end with a phrase today, okay, that is used in the ancient worship services of Eastern Christians, okay? If you were to go to a worship service today, 
of an Orthodox or any Eastern Christian, maybe an Oriental Orthodox or somewhere, any that follow this Eastern liturgy, you will hear the very first words of the service are this. Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever and unto the ages of ages. What are they saying? They're calling people into this blessedness of the kingdom. And they're saying, we are now entering the kingdom. And blessed is that kingdom. Because it's the kingdom of the Father, it's the kingdom of the Son, it's the kingdom of the Holy Spirit, and it was and always will be forever and ever and unto ages of ages. And that's where we live and move and have our being, as the Apostle Paul states later in his writings. In Christ, in the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we move and live and have our being. So, thoughts or questions about all this we've been learning through these last five, it's been five weeks in the chapter eight. I didn't know we'd be that long in chapter eight, but there's so much there. Any thoughts, questions? I think I was thinking of these Pharisees or whoever they were that were confronting Jesus. <clears throat> but when Jesus was brought to the temple, presented as a baby <laughs> to God, there was Simeon. Right. He believed. He he he, he, he saw it. He knew. It. Yeah. And Anna was there also. Yeah. So people, some people, they got it. Well, Says Simeon was righteous, right? Yeah, but but they could have, like you say, they they could have known or they could have chosen, yeah, to believe. They could have, but they had allowed they of their own free will had allowed their hearts to be hardened, right? And and they were probably, I I think in my own mind, thinking that it's going to happen this way. Yeah, they had preconce they could have had preconceived ideas. Yeah, I think so. so yeah, I think you're right okay, there. Okay, and this guy doesn't really fit it. So he must be a demon. And I wonder, I, don't, I, don't I, I, think you, I think you're onto something, though, because I think that's a message to us. How much, how much do we have preconceived ideas of how we think everything's going to work out? And how we think God should act? Right. And how we think people should act if they're of God? I mean, we have lots of preconceived ideas, don't we? Oh, wow. There's a message there. But let's come back to the last word I put on the board. I, I failed. The, the promise. I, we spoke about it. Eternal life is the promise. Jesus offers the promise to everyone who believes eternal life. I want to just say this in closing. I, I feel like I have to remind people of this because I have to remind myself this. God is not mad at us for being human. I think if I want to be known for something, I want to be known for that phrase, God is not mad at us. I just want to tell the world, God is not mad at us for being human. He created us human. He made us human. We're, we're human and we're fallible and we make mistakes. But I say that in context of the discussion we had at the end of last week about the dear little ladies who lived their whole lives for a service to the kingdom and the church and then wondered, I hope God takes me to heaven. As if they weren't. Maybe not going to make it. Well, there's a sense in which we all should say that. But there's also a sense in which we need to have joy. And we need to have uh, assurance. That, uh, I, I mean, if I die right now, if I die today, I hope I don't in, in one sense. I mean, I want to continue to raise my family and continue to see them. And, and I think it's a blessing to grow into old age and to see your family and all that. 
But you know what? If I did die today, I would like to say to you that I believe God will take me to heaven. Because I love him. Do you love him? Do you love God? You see, that's what it all comes down to. It's not about your religion. It's not about how well you've tried to live out the articles of faith. It's not, a, it's not about how well you've tried to perform all of the righteous acts. It's love. Because if God has our heart, he has everything he needs. We may not always perform our lives perfectly, but he's in the process of shaping us if, we, if he has our heart. So do you love Jesus Christ? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you do, then know that he loved you and will always love you. Another thing that I often say to families in, in, in funeral services, no matter who we are, no matter where we go, no matter what we do, God is always with us and always loves us. There's nothing you can do to earn that. And there's nothing you can do to lose that. He will always love you, even if you don't love him. But if you love him, and that's your testimony today, and you die today, I think you're going to make it. I really do. God, help us to all journey on this journey so that one day we don't step out of line. We need his grace to help us so we don't step out of line. Because salvation is a journey as much as it is, a, as it is an event. It's a process and an event. The word teaches us that. So let us continue. As, as the book of Hebrews says, So then, let us therefore not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but all the more as we see the day drawing near. What is the Hebrew writer saying? Don't stop going to church. Don't stop coming to Bible study. Let's keep assembling together and even more so as we get closer to Jesus, as the day draws near, because the day is drawing near. We don't know when, but the day is drawing near. Well, I could go on and on, but we want to have dessert. <laughs> so let's pray in closing. Father God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for these hearts that are so willing to study the gospel and to study your word. And I, I, I am so woefully inept at teaching it, but please cover over anything I say that is wrong or misleading or mistaken and help us all by your spirit and the power of your Holy Spirit to sense that we are being drawn to that day when we will cross that threshold and we will see Jesus face to face. God bless those who have already crossed that threshold. We honor them and we ask their prayers for us to be strong and to make it through. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that, that gives us that strength. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages, and all God's children said, Amen. Thank you all. Let's go have dessert. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.